Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, everyone. So uh, the calm before the storm, here we are. Um, We're going to take time at the end of our service to pray um, specifically for those in the track of this storm. And so um, just know that we're going to leave that to the end before the benediction. I want to start by um, just uh, one in- introduce myself. If you weren't here just a minute ago, my name is Josiah. I'm one of the pastors on staff. And it's uh, my great joy to bring God's word today. Um, I also want to say first off to you, um, church partners, thank you so much, man. Um, honestly, words can't describe uh, just your how grateful I am um, to be able to have this next month with my family. And I want to also tell you, man, like I've done much contemplating um, and conversation with others um, who have taken sabbatical um, and to really figure out, man, what am I going to be doing during this month? And I want you to know that uh, this is not vacation for me, although there is a vacation planned already in the month that was already predetermined. Um, this month is not for vacation. Um, we're not just going to be hanging loose and just cutting and, and going wild, although we'll have fun. But really the point of this month for me that I found is I'm just, I'm going to learn how to be healthy as a person, as a man, as a, uh, to learn how to be um, healthy and physically, like eat well, sleep well, um, to learn how to be healthy and holy, to pursue prayer, to pursue reading um, with my family, with time alone, to take extended periods of time um, by myself. Like these are the things that I know I need to push reset on, to write songs, to draw. These are things that, man, I just feel like I've just had zero margin in my life, but God has created me to do. And so I'm so excited to lean into them. And so thank you for valuing that. Um, 
that purpose, um, I guess, in not just me, but in the church, in the leaders of the church. Um, and so I, um, it, it is huge. It is huge. Um, I'm really grateful for it. And um, so with that, uh, we're going to begin our sermon here. Uh, today's sermon is titled The Mission of Mercy. And God's mercy has a mission. So it's a mission of mercy. And meaning that God's mission ha- or God's mercy has a mission. What we've been sharing every week is that this mercy, this often offensive and sometimes harsh mercy of God has a purpose in it. Right? We've seen through the book of Jonah different displays of this. That mercy calls, that mercy pursues, that mercy even transforms. And we'll see today that mercy leads us to mission. That God's mercy is not just um, it's, it's not just, you know, happenstance, you know, but there is a purpose behind it. There is something that God is intending to do. So neither his justice, his judgment, nor his mercy is just empty or free. There's something behind it. There's a reason that God is giving it. And so we see today that mercy leads us to mission. It results in mission. Now, this doesn't mean that God's mercy is for mission primarily, Right? So don't get confused there. It's not for mission, but his mercy extended without merit or cause is for his glory. It's for his glory, for his name's sake, that he might be glorified. But mercy given always produces mission. We could think of um, mercy as a spring, as a, a natural spring, where from all these tributaries flow from. Our Lord Jesus is the fountain of living water. And, and these many giving, life-giving tributaries produce this beautiful and lush landscape in the Christian's life. Now, it is not the only thing that makes the landscape beautiful, mercy. It is one of many tributaries, it is one of many streams flowing down. But without mission, the scenery would be simply that. It would just be scenery. It would be like a beautiful painting of something that is beautiful, But it's not interactive. We can't enjoy it in the sense of what the scenery is. It's like the difference of seeing a photograph of the Grand Canyon and standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. Yes, the photo is beautiful, but it is not breathtaking like standing at the edge of a canyon, right? God's mercy or mission is the means by which the world experiences God's beauty. Mission is the means by which the world experiences God's beauty. Where we began a study in our community groups called the Gospel Center Community. And it's by Robert Thune. And he defines mission as this. Mission is moving toward others the way that God has moved toward us. Mission is moving toward others the way that God has moved toward us. Now, this might seem, and we had a great conversation about this um, this past week in my community group, but um, this might seem simplistic. It may be, you know, just oversimplifies and trite even. But here's what we have to understand, is that none of our efforts towards mission can be accomplished if we're not willing to move towards people. But it's not just the act of moving towards people that we are to consider. It is, we are to consider how we have been moved towards by God. It is not just that God moved towards us. It is 
contemplating, understanding how did God move towards me? And then I respond accordingly and I move towards people in like manner. Does that make sense? Mission is moving towards people the way that God has moved towards us. This no longer becomes just trite and simplistic. It actually becomes radical in a sense. Because God's love and his mercy displayed towards us in the way that he moved towards us, undeserving sinners, is radical. And if we, too, respond accordingly in a way that God has moved towards us, towards people, it becomes radical. It's not trite. It's not simplistic. So in order for you to just kind of, and this understanding that mercy leads to mission, just that I'm not just making that up, and um, I want to give some passages in Scripture here. There are many to choose from, but I'm just going to use 1 Peter 1 and 2 um, to kind of show this, um, that mission is a result of God's mercy. And so uh, you can turn there if you like. I'm just going to breeze through these real quick. But 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. Amen. And then he goes in verse 7, he says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we see that this um, mercy received, this grace received, would result in praise and glory to Jesus one day. And then in verse 13, after he kind of gives us this course of this is how um, this is all going to happen. You will know the hope that is within you is a hope that is imperishable, undefiled. It's kept in heaven for you. Verse 13, he says, therefore, because of these things, prepare your minds for action. Preparing your minds for action. So because you have received mercy, because of this great mercy, you have been born again to a living hope. It will produce in you genuineness of your faith. It will result in the glory and praise and honor of Jesus Christ on that day. And therefore, because of that, prepare your minds for action. Verse 22, he goes on. So therefore, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again. Again, you hear this um, cause and effect, or this, um, this imperative to do so because of what you have received. And then in chapter 1 verse 25, going into chapter 2 verse 1. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Chapter 2 verse 9 and 10, he continues and finishes this way. A people, we are a people for his own possession. That, again, hear that, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Church, we are to extend mercy because of the mercy that we have received. Because of the great and grand gesture of God to put aside his own self, to put aside all of his glory and worth and come as a person, put on flesh and die in our place, we are to extend the same type of mercy and proclaim that mercy, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and transferred us into his marvelous light. That is how mercy leads us to mission as we understand it. And so as we jump into this passage this morning, put away this Bible. Let me grab my Bible. That would help. As we jump into the passage this morning, I want to show us just first off just kind of a, a, 
a roadmap and a landscape, I guess, of this passage as we zoom out a little bit from it first. And, um, and there's two parallels that are in this story. And we see the first part of the story that Jonah gets mad at Nineveh uh, for their repentance and God's decision to relent of his wrath. And in the second part, we see that Jonah gets mad because of the plant dying. And it's not only parallel in its narrative, but also in its composition and in, in, in the word and the verbiage that the author uses. And we have, a, yeah, we have up here, I want us to just see this real quick. So um, we see in chapter 4, verse 1, that it to, this pleased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And we also see um, the same language displayed in the second part of the story with the plant, that when the plant grew, he was, the same language, exceedingly glad. This is just a, an, an insight a little bit into where Jonah's heart is in this moment. He's exceedingly angry and displeased at what God would do concerning the people, but exceedingly glad because of this plant. So he's drawing a parallel there, the author. So we need to see that. The second thing is that in verse 3, he says the same language in verse 8. For it is better for me to die than to live. Verse 8 again. It is better for me to die than to live, concerning both the scenarios. And then the last part, um, God answers him the same in both these. Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Do you do well to be angry? All through this book, we've been reminded, reminding ourselves of this very important truth that we are Jonah. We are Jonah. And so as we jump into these verses here, it, it might be easy for us to kind of point the finger and, and say, man, what a terrible person Jonah is. Um, and it might be true, but you ever heard, you know, that you, you ever been so angry? Um, at, you ever been so angry at someone um, you know, and you feel very justified in what you ha- in your anger um, because of what they have done and is wrong, right? Um, but then there something happens where you either catch yourself doing the same thing, or somebody just tells you, "Hey, man, that, like you did the exact same thing," or maybe God shows you in a certain way, and you're like, "Oh," you know, and it causes a little bit like, "Oh, wow, I don't really have any reason to be that angry." Um, just as bad as that person, right? It, you know, kind of like that, um, yeah, what's that phrase? You know, for every finger you point at someone, there's four pointing back at you, which doesn't make any sense, actually, because there's only three pointing back. The point's the same. I think my mic's cutting in now. I might have to grab another one. But, you know, it's true, right? So if we want to condemn somebody else, we got to first, you know, look at ourselves and be like, man, am I, am I just as guilty? And most of the time, yes, it is true. So let's jump into this um, passage here. Um, verse 1, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What displeased Jonah? Again, it is God's um, relenting. First off, it is Nineveh's repentance. We see that they, um, they tore off their robes, they put on sackcloth and ash, and they began to fast. All a sign of their repentance in this. And God, uh, it says in here, that when God saw... This is verse 10 of chapter 3. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said when he, um, that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. 
For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. You're slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Here we get the real reason why Jonah fled in the first place. He knew the character of God, right? He knew what the scriptures told him about this God. He knew this God firsthand. He knew him personally. Jonah was a prophet of the Lord. So he begins to tell God what God said about himself. This is from Exodus 34. These are God's very words concerning himself to Moses. This is right after um, God is renewing covenant with Israel. And they have broken covenant. And they chose to worship false gods. And Moses had just created the second tablets of the Ten Commandments. I'm going to grab a different microphone. You got it, Ryan. You're the greatest. I'm like trying to figure out back here and just trust my wife. She actually knows what she's doing. Yeah. (laughs) Second and greater, Ryan, as we've said. Okay, so, sorry. Um, And so this is right at this moment, and God says this to Moses, right? And so Exodus 34, he says... um, the Bible says this in Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him being Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But Jonah forgot to include the second part of what God says here. He says, but who will by no means clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the father and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Remember, church, that the city of Nineveh was in the land of Assyria. And Assyria was a a wicked people. The Bible tells us this. Um, We're not going to go into detail on all about Assyria because I believe that's been covered pretty well in previous weeks. And so I really encourage you to go back and honestly, if you haven't listened to it, uh, listen on our website, those pas- um, passages concerning Assyria in the context of this, uh, specifically Eric Loudermilks. He's the uh, interim pastor at Oasis. He filled in here one week and I felt like he just gave, gave a really great understanding of the context and how we can relate to Jonah in this moment. But what we need to understand is that this was a wicked city and Assyria were the enemies of God's people. And so Jonah was called to go to a city comprised of enemies of himself. Not just like enemies in the way that they might like make fun of him or something, but enemies that would actually kill him, pull him apart in pieces, right? They were a wicked people. So Jonah might have been angry um, that God would show these people mercy because they don't deserve mercy. But I think more likely, Jonah knew that mercy for Nineveh meant judgment for Israel. Prophets before Jonah had already testified and said that Assyrians would be the instruments of God's judgment on Israel one day. Due to Israel's disobedience and their turning from the true God into worshiping other gods. And so judgment and mercy here are really two sides of the same coin. And as I said earlier, that mercy is never just free. Just as judgment is never just free. That in 
If God extends mercy to whom he wills, then judgment is paid upon another. If judgment is given towards one, then mercy is given towards another. We can think of Jesus in this. How did God display his greatest act of mercy to us as a church? That God who loved the world sent his only son, right? And in sending his son, the point was this, that God knew that we could never atone for our own sins. That all for centuries past, we have tried in the ways that God had given us to sacrifice animals over and over again. But it was so limited, and so there needed to be a fullness of this atonement. And so God sent his son to pay for our sins, to atone for our sins. And Jesus on the cross, he drank the fullness of God's wrath. He drank it all so that we did not have to. This was the display of God's mercy. But his mercy was not free. His judgment still had to be paid because God is a just God. God cannot let sin and evil go unpaid. And so Jesus stepped in our place because God is loving and he's glorious. And somehow in his divine wisdom, he decides to give mercy to people that don't deserve it. But at the cost of that mercy was Jesus' life. We can see here that jo- where Jonah's heart is in this. And um, Ellie Weisel said so poignantly in my study of this this week, I love this. He said, Jonah does not wish Nineveh to die, yet he does not wish Nineveh to live at the expense of Israel. This is where Jonah's heart is. It's evident that Jonah's angry and he's become despondent. And his despondency has led him to blindness, to even see how he's acting. He's forgotten, first and foremost, God's mercy towards him. Don't forget that God's mercy has been on Jonah this entire time. In fleeing and disobeying God and turning the other way and trying to run away, God in his mercy, as Jonah throws himself off the boat, catches him with a fish and saves his life. And then as Jonah repents, he gives him another chance and say, go. God's mercy is unrelenting towards Jonah. And his heart still hasn't changed. Jonah's heart is still hardened. I believe this could be, Jonah's anger here is more than just sulkiness, like a sulky attitude, right? But but Jonah's here is, I, I think, really experiencing a deep depression a depression that is leading him to just take my life. I mean, this is a depression that I think many people have experienced due to an unabated anger in their life. An unwillingness to look inwardly. And I'm not talking about um, clinical and chronic anxiety and depression. I'm talking about a depression that leads you from a place of anger and unwillingness to forgive. An unwillingness to see God's mercy towards you that leads you to a place where you're just like, man, the whole world is against me. If this is what it is, take my life, God. I don't, I don't need this. It's what Brian Estelle says, it, an anger that's turned reflexively against oneself. And so I'm just going to turn in on myself and just, you know, God, take my life. And here's what God responds with. Do you do well to be angry? Verse 4. Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? John Calvin In his commentary, he says, God reminds Jonah to examine his own heart. As though he said, look on thyself as in a mirror. Thou wilt see what a boisterous sea is thy soul. 
being seized as thou art by so mad a rage. A good rule of thumb, church, is when you're angry, begin by examining your own heart. You might just look in and see what a boisterous soul there is. That the seas inside of your heart are raging due to an anger that's unrelented and unabated. And it seems that Jonah just, he doesn't answer God, right? What does he do? Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city. He sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under the shade till till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head, so to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up on the next day, God appointed a worm and attacked the plant, so it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Let's look at verses 5 through 9 first here. It's likely that Jonah was, you know, what's he doing here? It's likely he was waiting for Nineveh just to prove themselves or their repentance untrue, right? It's likely he went up there and was like, you know, let's just see if this is for real. Let's see what you got, Nineveh. And then because if they didn't, if they proved themselves untrue, then God would have to display his wrath to them. He would destroy them as he promised to do. And then Jonah could say to God, see, God, I told you this is a worthless idea. This is an evil people. One thing that Jonah had not learned, though, is that he cannot escape God. So this whole thing that he begins to do is just a complete deflection of what God is asking him, of what God is wanting him to see. But God is patient towards Jonah. When we see in the passage here how patient God is with Jonah all through this, that Jesus, the great hound of heaven, he will chase you down. Whether you try to escape him by you know, fleeing to another country or you just try to escape him by avoiding his questions, by ignoring his voice. It's important to note here also that God does not simply just chide Jonah, right? He just doesn't come down on him for his, for his attitude. But the mercy of the Lord is present even in these moments of blatant sin. That God's mercy is so present here in, the, in, this, in this very moment of, God, of Jonah's, like Jonah's in dangerous territory of challenging the Lord of heavens on his decision, right? Let's not like pass that by. Like he's challenging him. He's like, this is a wrong decision, God. But instead of just smiting Jonah right where he is, what does God do? He pursues him. You know, maybe even worse, God just dismissed Jonah. Just fine, and we leave you be. That would be, that's really what we deserve. Just God leaving us be. But God pursues Jonah. Right in the midst of his blatant arrogance, he pursues him. Like he did with the fish, so he does with the plant and the worm and the wind. Even Jonah's own stupidity, he pursues him through these things. And when Jonah goes up and he he sets up a booth to escape the sun and the heat and the shade, God is trying to show him all along, like, Jonah, what you really need is my shelter. What you really need is my provision that can come under my love 
And Jonah's just trying to escape and do his own thing and deflect all that God is trying to show him on the heart level. The interesting thing here is the booth is actually can be and mostly translated tabernacle. This place of God's refuge. So God is showing him in his mercy and he's like trying to, Jonah, stop. Come under my provision. Come under my love. Jonah, stop running. Stop trying to escape me. I'm here. You can't avoid me. My mercy is present every moment, Jonah, and I will not leave you to yourself. Praise God that he does not leave us to ourselves. But God's care is for both the weak and the strong. In the final verses here, this is kind of where this whole book has been building to, this moment. And he says this in verse 10, And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and much cattle? Now, if I was writing this, I would probably just end with 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. But God saw fit to put in also much cattle. Um, No commentator touches it, and so neither will we this morning. So if you wanted an answer for that, I don't have it. Um, So I could answer that? I I got nothing for you. Um, So uh, regardless, God in his wisdom puts it there. And maybe so we could know that God even cares over the animals, right? And he does. It's true. So, with this word should, and should I not pity Nineveh, is actually better translated may I. May I not pity Nineveh? It has to, is relating to God's sovereignty over all things. Like he's able to give mercy, extend mercy to whomever he wishes. The plant, Jonah, Nineveh. Jonah held no jurisdiction in this, not over the plant, not over Nineveh, not over his own life, but God's boundaries, his jurisdiction has no boundaries. Okay, he's completely sovereign over all things. Paul speaks to this in Romans 9, verse 14 16. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, Paul's words, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Jonah must realize that God has the absolute freedom to do what he wishes. God is completely sovereign. He has the ability and the freedom to do as he wishes. But in this word here, there is more, there's more happening than just God's sovereignty. The word in Hebrew for may or should is chus. And it is, has to do with more than just the rights of the creator to do whatever he wants, but it has to do with the, how he carries out his liberties. It has to do with his character. The way in which the sovereign creator carries out his privileges as being a sovereign creator. One commentator said it this way, it is the action executed with tears in his eyes. If you think of a judge that's standing And he has to make a decision, to make a decision to execute justice rightly. He knows the cost of it, one way or the other. But he must judge rightly. He does it with tears in his eyes. 
because he does it with love and not with hate. Because he's full of love. This is a, just a really sharp image, right, of Jesus in Jerusalem. If you want, you can turn there with me to Luke chapter 19. And right after Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jesus and in Jerusalem, in verse 41, it says in chapter 19, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, speaking of the city, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is not executing this judgment out of hate for Jerusalem. But he's filled with tears. He's weeping over Jerusalem's state. But yet justice still must happen. This is what's happening here. It's important to see that the weak one in this story is not Nineveh. Nineveh is a strong and mighty city, right? It's Jonah. Nineveh is extremely wealthy, powerful, efficient, nothing to gain here, um, especially from an Israelite prophet. But God's concern is both for the strong and the weak. As Peter told the crowd in Acts 10.34, truly understand that God shows no partiality. Ironically, those who have egregiously sinned are actually the objects of God's concern. And in this story, it's both Jonah, both Nineveh. God's concern is for not just the ones that are pitiable, but the ones that are hard to pity. The ones who have egregiously sinned. So application today as we close out here in a minute. Um, how do we move toward others in the way that God has moved towards us? How that God in Christ has moved towards us? What makes mercy so profound, again, is not just that um, God's mercy is for the pitiable, but it is for, um, it is for the, those who are hard to pity. You know, we want to extend mercy to those that it's easy to extend mercy to. We often do that. But we cannot move towards others in mercy until we grasp the theology of God's mercy towards us, which means we understand the lengths and the heights and the depths that he went to to give us that mercy. We like to chide and berate those who do wrong. We like to cheer um, when our political opponent fails. We think towards others, man, I'm glad I'm not like that. Maybe even worse, we say, man, they will know one day when God judges them. And it's not out of love, but it's out of a hate for them. Is that in your heart today? That your mercy extends to those that it's easy to give mercy to, but not to the ones that have egregiously sinned, maybe against you personally. Tim Keller says, real compassion, the voluntary attachment of our hearts to theirs, means the sadness of their condition makes us sad. This is what the author here in Jonah is talking about when he says this is a people that do not know their right hand from their left. That they're lost. They're utterly lost in their sin. They're not, they're not, um, what's the word? They're helpless in their sin, but they are not innocent in their sin. They're not innocent in this. 
They've egregiously sinned, but they're helpless to know a way out unless God's mercy comes to them through Jonah. So God says, can I not extend them mercy for their waywardness and their helplessness? I stand here today, guys, not as an accomplished missionary, right? But as the worst of these. I mean, I fail at this time and time again. There is much messiness in my life. Much that I must reflect upon and confess and repent of and turn from. I am Jonah. You are Jonah. Not because you might, you know, you're like me in your waywardness. You may even sympathize with the things that I struggle with. But we are Jonah because we are not like Christ. We are Jonah because we are not like Christ. In America, we have somehow convinced that ourselves that our greatest evangelism is to get our unbelieving friends to church. Like, this is our greatest effort in life. Let me tell you guys, invite people to your tables. Open your homes. Open your table. Buy a bigger table. I, lo- I love this. Can you put it on the screen? I saw this a few years back, and this has become a meme. I don't know where it started, honestly. I tried to research it. But I love this. It's the mercy of God. If you're more fortunate than others, build a longer table, not a taller fence. Does that premise exist in your life? Day in and day out. How do I extend mercy to others? It's what Rosario Butterfield calls radical hospitality. Radical, costly hospitality our lives to exemplify this. And when we consider the lengths and the great, the great heights and the depths that Christ has gone for us, we, we see it all through Scripture. You know, so 1 Corinthians one twenty six was to tell us that consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise. Not many of you are strong. Not many of you are of noble birth. But what? God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. He chose what is weak to shame the strong. He, show, he chose what is low and despised, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So in the presence of God, no man may boast. This is God's choosing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, for our sake, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 5, verse 6 and 7. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One would scarcely die for an unrighteous person, maybe a good person, right? But God chose to show his love for us in this way, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Galatians chapter 3, verse, I believe, 15. That he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This is the links that God would go to extend his mercy to a people undeserving. This is the gospel. Extended to all people, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every background, every, every uh, fluency level, wherever you live, whoever you hang out with, whatever your history is, whatever your story is, This is the mercy extended to you. Because Jesus here is the better prophet. 
Jesus is showing himself in this story to be the better prophet than Jonah. Not merely because he weeped for a city, but because he died for that city. Jonah was not willing to do that. So Jonah would go outside of the city gates to watch the city's condemnation, but Jesus went outside the city and nailed himself to a cross in order to accomplish its salvation. You see how this story points us not to any person except for the one risen person, Christ. Jesus. Jesus. So I have two questions for us in just closing, and they're, and they're this. And, and so, so think of this church. I mean, I've, I've honestly, I've been, in, in the remaining days and hours of preparing for this sermon, I've just been contemplating these two questions. I've been soaking over these passages that I quote to you this morning. I've been trying to just dive in deep to the mercy of God because it's from a place of understanding the mercy of God that we might move towards people, that we might move towards repentance. And we talked about this in my community group, that moving, moving towards mission is not just saying, I'm gonna start doing these things. It begins with repentance. You become more missional as you become more repentant. And so in understanding that, what ways have you seen yourself withholding mercy? I mean, practically, tangibly, specifically, what ways have you withheld mercy and why? And the second thing, what is one way you can begin to move towards someone who needs God's mercy? Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your incredible, matchless love, grace, and mercy. But we are undeserving Lord, you did not die for us because we deserve to be died for, but because we, Lord, you chose and you're great and, and we can't understand your ways. We can't understand your thoughts, God, but because you are matchless and perfect in them, you chose to give of yourself. You chose to receive glory and praise through dying and using people that are worthless, that have nothing to give to you. We have nothing in our hands, oh God, to give you. But yeah, all the same, you move towards us. God, would you come and remind us of this great, amazing mercy for us today? Would you move us from a place of complacency? Would you move us from a place of just um, selfishness or comfort, whatever it may be, God, and move us out? Call us to the places, oh Lord, that are hard. Call us to the places that we fear the most. God, may we be moved so greatly by what you have done for us that we, there would be no links to which we would not go for you. For the glory and praise of your name and your name alone. Amen.